Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text today is from the Gospel, reading these words recorded by Mark. Jesus said, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is our text, dear friends, in our Lord. In the historical fiction novel From Dark to Dawn, a novel known by many of you as our women's reading group recently undertook the read, the author of the book, Elizabeth Charles Rundle, tells the story of a young German girl named Elsa Kata. And her 16th century family, Kata, that lives in the town of Eisenach. Now, if the name Kata sounds vaguely familiar to you, it may be because there really was a family, Kata, fellow townsfolk and special friends of a young German schoolboy named Martin Luther. The author uses this char- the charming members of this factual family to tell a delightfully descriptive yet semi-fictional account of, of the life of Martin Luther through the eyes of friends. Well, at one point in the novel, little Elsa very innocently ponders greatness. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven, and she wonders aloud, Will everyone in heaven always be struggling for high places? Because when everyone does that at church on the great festival days, it's not at all pleasant. Those who succeed look proud. Those who fail look cross, she considers. But of course, she says, no one will be cross in heaven nor proud. Well, then how will the saints feel who do not get the high places? Will they be pleased or disappointed? If they are pleased, she notes, well, what's the use in struggling so much to climb a little higher? But if they're not pleased, would that be saint-like? Little Elsa hits the nail right on the head, doesn't she? Little Elsa, not knowing exactly what she's saying, she's describing us rather well. Whether the higher places in heaven or the better positions in the mundane things here below, great is not great so often until it's greater. The good things are not as good until they're better. You see, we have that natural propensity to be the kings. Kings of our own hill, of our own castle, of the sandbox. That No matter what stage in life, every age of life, we tend to compare ourselves with the Joneses. We keep up with the Joneses so that one day perhaps we can outdo the Joneses because at the end of the day, down deep, that's what we long for naturally, inborn in us greatness, at least being greater than another. And if you think it can't happen in the church and among God's people, then just note the text for today. Listen to James and John. They certainly had greatness on the mind. And as we saw in the gospel reading, it didn't much please the other ten that these two, James and John, made an end around to seek from the Lord greatness, positions of greatness, positions of glory. But you know what's perhaps more amazing about the request that James and John made of our Lord, that one should sit at the right hand, one at the left hand of power, was perhaps what's perhaps more blatantly bold is that just a chapter earlier in the book of Mark, The disciples were caught arguing among themselves about the very same thing, greatness. Sounding much like school children, just a a chapter before as the disciples walked down the road, sounding much like school children on the playground, the Lord's elect twelve argued among themselves. Argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom. 
This same group of men who would define words like martyr, an apostle, an evangelist, the same men who'd be given to pen the very words of Scripture, the words that would generate ages of Christian men and women and then attend these men and women through great peril and tribulation, these men, these men whom history would record as heroes of the faith, these men, like children, were busy arguing about who was the greatest. Still, though, in the church and of those of the church, it's a problem. As we among ourselves consider who is the greatest, still in the church we waste time considering first and worst, best and the rest, Greater, often political majorities and lesser minorities factor into ecclesial decision-making far more than what ought to be. Our chief concerns and overall compulsion, that being the preservation of the doctrine, of the faith, and love. There's certainly, though, nothing new under the sun. Wasn't it pride? Wasn't it ambition to be greater than he was fashioned or appointed to be? that caused the son of the morning, Lucifer, to fall like lightning from heaven? Wasn't this same desire the tempting tool in the devil's hand when he led Adam and his wife into pride's reward? And so for everyone born thereafter, the lust for greatness is something born and bred. Remember those two twin boys in their mother's womb, Esau and Jacob. Scripture tells us that even within her womb they were contending with one another. For greatness, Jacob was still, rather was even delivered from the womb shortly after his brother still, still grasping little Esau's heel. And you well know that it's our natural inclination too. Contending for what we see as greatness, we're always finding little ways to gain advantages over others. Especially if we find ourselves living in the shadow of another. It happens, doesn't it, in the workplace? Especially in these economically challenging times. Perhaps, perhaps we never seem to bask in the rays of the employer's praise over a job well done because it seems someone else is always soaking up that sun. At school, perhaps. In the academics or on the theater stage or on the track, on the soccer field. Basketball court. Perhaps there's always someone who outshines you or at home. Maybe you're eclipsed by the greatness of siblings present or, or perhaps the achievements of parents in the past. And our sinful nature is not content living in the shadows of others. The perceived greatness of others, it bothers us. Truth is, though, that if any one of us were this very minute to begin to consider our own innate, inborn greatness, then I tell you we'd already be done. Why? Because there's not much to consider. The 17th century theologian Johann Gerhardt, he exhorts us in this way, and he says, Consider, O faithful soul, the lowly condition of man, and thou wilt the more easily avoid all temptation to pride. He says he enters the world a helpless infant. His passage through it is attended with constant miseries. And he leaves it in tears. And he says it well. He says it well. Of ourselves, we're not even qualified to discuss greatness because genuine greatness, we have none. It doesn't stop us, though, 
doesn't stop even us, our Lord's disciples, from measuring ourselves, not necessarily satisfied always with the, the particular station of greatness that we've been appointed in life. doesn't stop us from measuring ourselves, from ever reaching upward, always upward, for greater greatness, grabbing for the heel of another in the hopes of supplanting him. Of course, like James and John and those disciples on the road, whose scripture tells us when our Lord asked them what they were discussing, they were too embarrassed even to confess what they had been talking about. But like James and John and the disciples, we wouldn't want to be caught talking about it or even thinking about it. But God, he knows that we do. The question, though, is what, is, what does Christ think of it? What, is, what does Christ say of it? Well, this is what he says of it. You heard him say it in the text today, in the gospel reading. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now to us, that makes as little sense as seeing the high point of Jesus' earthly life in the crucifixion, in the low point of his death upon the cross. But such is greatness with God. Such is greatness with Christ. For he himself said of himself, the Son of Man... Indeed, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's what our Lord thinks of greatness. It's not the self-placed greatness to be found on the pinnacles of the highest mountaintops, but Christ-like greatness found in all the low-lying, so often in those low-lying places in the deep valleys where the beams of praise and applause don't much shine. But recall what Christ says. He says, take my, take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's Christ, humble in heart. And so that's why Paul exhorts us the way that he does. In the words that he does, words that we're going to hear next week, the epistle reading for Palm Sunday. This is what Paul says. He says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, Paul writes, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. And that, friends, is true greatness. And for us, it's the perfect example of divine greatness. But you yourself know well that a mere example cannot save us. A mere example cannot save us. A mere example cannot be for us a lutron. A lutron in the Greek, ransom. The ransom for many, as Christ said. Because that's exactly what we needed. A lutron, it's, it's the word that Mark used in quoting Jesus in today's gospel text, lutron. It's a word that means the price paid to effect the release of one who's held in some kind of bondage, lutron. It's payment for release from guilt and from penalty, ransom. It's how it's rendered lutron. You see, it took Christ serving not as a mere example for us, but indeed as the Lutron, the one and only Lutron, the ransom. Humbling himself, taking 
our sins of pride and every other kind, taking them to the cross, taking them down with him to the grave so that they could never stand, even our greatest sins, so they could never stand against us or take us down where they belong. And because of it, we're rich, friends, with heaven's present spiritual blessings. And we're rich with heaven's future greatness. All because he set it all aside to humble himself and bend low in servant posture. Love. Love, you see, serves. Love of self is self-serving. But you consider Christ's love. As we sang in that beautiful Lenten hymn just a minute ago, you see, it was in love to the loveless shown that they too might lovely be. In that kind of love that the divine became flesh with no other intention and with no ulterior motive but to serve us. Greater love... Greater love hath no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And Christ said, and you are my friends. And what else can we call that but divine service? But that's what we call this here too, isn't it? Of course, that's what we call this here today. As we're gathered, we call it divine service. Divine service, not because our presence here. And our praise somehow make it divine. It's just the opposite. But because in humble word and under the humble and servant forms of bread and wine and water and word, the divine one, Jesus Christ, still bends low to serve us time and time and time again with the sin-forgiving fruits of his cross. Someone has said the more fruit on a tree, the more fruit on its branches, the lower that those branches hang. So bountiful are the branches of Christ's humble and holy cross, the blessed tree of the cross, that there is no one so low that that cannot be served. There's no one so low that cannot be served by the low-hanging branches of the forgiving fruit of the cross. Which way then, you ask to true greatness, that was the, the question, that was the The thought on the mind of James and John. God greatness is in the service. In service in the humble and in the deep, deep in the night when an unassuming mother rather ordinarily and routinely serves the needs of her her needy infant. It's when a neighbor to the praise and glory of no one takes one more look around to, to make sure his neighbor's property is safe and secure. Greatness when by your thoughts and words and deeds like John the Baptist said, when greatness, when anything that you think, say, or do, is said or done or thought to the tune of he must increase and I must decrease. It's what you might call faces of coal greatness. Because it was during World War II that England needed to increase its coal production. So Winston Churchill, Prime Minister, called together labor leaders to enlist their support. And at the presentation the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture in their minds a parade which he knew would be held in Piccadilly Circus after the war. And he said to them, first, he said, would come the sailors who kept the sea lanes 
opened. The vital sea lanes opened. Then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then had gone on to defeat Rommel in Africa. And then would come the pilots. He said, who had driven the, the Nazi Luftwaffe from the sky. And lastly, he said, and prominently of all, would come the long line of sweat-stained and soot-streaked men in miners' caps. And someone, he said, would cry from the crowd, and, and where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And then Churchill said, and from 10,000 throats would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. You see, though, friends, there's no need to argue over who has more coal on his face. Because that will always and ever be Jesus Christ. As we tread now toward the deepest days of Lent, God keep our eyes fixed as the gradual of the season goes on Christ Jesus. To keep us mindful of his service to us, service once upon a cross, And now service that he faithfully renders to us here week after week in his word and sacrament. God so grant it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.